And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the book of Revelation, if you'll turn there, chapter 14. We looked at the first five verses last time. And so Revelation chapter 14, we'll begin reading at verse 6. But in the first five verses that we looked at, that we looked at the benefits and the blessings of purity last time, and I think it was uh, got a huge response on that. And I would encourage you, if you weren't here, to uh, listen to that study because it's a subject that's not talked a whole lot about in the church today. But as we look at these 144,000, we see that they were ones that were marked with purity. As we're going through this book of Revelation in chapter 6 through 19, you know that we were looking at that period of time that's referred to in Daniel's book as Daniel's 70th week. We call it the tribulation period. And it's that final seven-year period prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ that we will see in chapter 19. But a lot of things are taking place. And, and the one that takes center stage here on the earth during that time is the one that comes riding on a white horse when the first seal is opened up in chapter 6, and that is the Antichrist. The Antichrist will be a literal person. Again, I was listening to a teaching that somebody did, and they were teaching that the, the rider on the white horse, the Antichrist, is just symbolic of government. And, and we know that the Bible speaks a whole lot about this one that's called the man of sin, the son of perdition. He's called the little horn. Uh, he has lots of titles. He's called the beast here in the book of Revelation. It will be an individual that will come on the scene and he will be a world leader. He comes on the scene, he's a political leader as he's conquering unto conquer. He has a bow but not an arrow. He seems to come with peaceful means that lines up with Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 as he confirms a covenant with Israel for one week or that is for seven years. We also have seen that he is going to be a religious leader. We will talk more about that in Revelation chapter 17 but we've seen it in chapter 13 as it is going to be the beast that's going to be worshipped by the world. And we know that as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that this man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, the lawless one as he is called, is going to go into the temple of God and he is going to, uh, to proclaim himself as God, to be worshipped as God uh, there in Jerusalem. And so we know that we see the temple standing in his place in Revelation chapter 11. He's going to proclaim himself as God to be worshipped. So and you know what's interesting about that? That Israel is headed for elections. And one of the candidates this last week was saying that if he gets elected prime minister of Israel, that he's going to push for the third temple. And so there's talk about that, and they're all ready with the furnishings and, and uh, everything ready to go. They just need a building. But these things that we're seeing happening right before our very eyes, and we know that a temple will be rebuilt. Uh, built in Jerusalem because there isn't one there now. But as we know that he will be a political leader, a religious leader, he also is going to be an economic leader as we saw in chapter 13 that you will not be able to buy or sell unless you take the mark of the beast and make your allegiance with him. And then also we will see he's a military leader as we go through our study here and he will lead his armies in the last world war called 
called the Battle of Armageddon. We're going to see a prelude to that here in chapter 14 and then in chapter 15 as well. So it gives us the preludes to the, the bold judgment. So a lot is taking place. But also what we have seen that there is God that is working during this time as he raises up 144,000 Jews that are from 12,000 from, from the 12 tribes of Israel and they are evangelists. And we saw them in chapter 7. And as a result of their ministry, many come to Christ in the tribulation period. But we also know that they're going to be persecuted very heavily. Because when the Antichrist proclaims himself as God in the temple there at the midway point of the tribulation period, he's going to go after anyone who does not worship the beast, who does not give their allegiance to him. Uh, he's going to uh, persecute those tribulation saints, and he's going to persecute those Jews as well that reject him. And there's going to be a remnant of the Jews, we know from chapter 12, that are going to flee to the rock city of Petra that's in Jordan today. So we learn from these 144,000, their powerful ministry, as they are sealed uh, by God. And we learn of their ministry. We, we look at their lives and, again, looking at the benefits and the blessings of purity as um, we looked at that last week. Listen, I want to say this. Never forget this. You will never regret living in purity. You will never regret living for the Lord. You will regret living for the world. You see, the enemy comes along, he's very deceptive. And he'll dangle the carrot, he'll deceive you, he'll have you, you know, think that if I pursue the world, and I pursue worldly pleasures, then now I'm going to be fulfilled. And I'm going to be free to do what I want to do. Listen, it's a deception. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. And he's out to destroy your life. And the Lord comes along and says, I desire for you to live in purity, not because he's trying to be a killjoy and ruin your life and restrict your life. Because a lot of people today, particularly in the church today, are getting the message, just live any way that you want. Don't be restricted. Listen, if you want to be in bondage, and you want to be bound up, and you want to be in captivity, then live for the world. But the way to truly be free is to travel the, the road of holiness and the highway of purity. That's the better way of living. And it's a loving father that says, I don't want you to be entangled in sin because it's going to do you in and wipe you out. There may be passing pleasure in sin for a moment, as the scripture says, but the end of its way is destruction. So you will never, never regret living in holiness and impurity. So we learn from these guys, don't we? These 144,000. But then we want to continue as we do in verse 6 of Revelation chapter 14. As we are going to see these proclamation from these angels that are going to fly across the whole earth. We read that I saw another angel in verse 6 flying in the midst of heaven. Having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. To every nation 
tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So we see here this angelic creature, and again we'll see three of them, making these proclamations. And the first angel preaches the gospel to every nation, tongue, people, and tribe. Now you might recall that in the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus was talking about the last days and his return and the signs of the end, that he would tell the disciples that the gospel will be preached to all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then shall the end come. And sometimes you'll, you'll read missionary groups that will say, a few of them, that we need to get the gospel to all the nations, to all the world, so Jesus can come back. Now, I applaud going to all the world and the nations to preach the gospel. Certainly we want to do that. That was a commandment that Jesus gave, to go to all the nations and preach the gospel. But we are not, you know, uh, to do that. In other words, the Lord isn't dependent on us for when he's going to come back. We know that this angel is going to do that, that this angel is going to preach the gospel to every nation, tongue, tribe, and people. And we saw in chapter 7 that the 144,000, that in their evangelistic you know, efforts, that we know that they did the same thing, that it, it says that after these things I look and behold a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. As a result of their going out and preaching the gospel that all the nations are going to hear the everlasting gospel. So think about this. People are going to hear the gospel in the tribulation period. And I want to remind you once again that I believe that the church will not go through the tribulation period, that we will be taken out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. So the church is going to be raptured before this seven-year period. But people are going to come to the knowledge of the gospel of the 144,000 that are evangelizing. You have the two witnesses in Jerusalem, and then you also have this angel proclaiming the everlasting gospel to everyone on the earth. Now, you might be thinking, why doesn't God do that now? Wouldn't it be awesome if an angel flew across the whole world giving the everlasting gospel? But God has chosen you. And he's chosen me. He's chosen the church to do that. And so we have opportunity to be able to be light and to give truth and to give the gospel to those who are linked to us in our lives. And sometimes the Lord will place us in, in different you know, places and settings and jobs and, and neighborhoods and, and people are linked to us in our lives because he does want you to, to reach them, to be a light to them, to be praying for those people that are around you in your life because he's given us the task to go out and give the gospel to all the nations for us to minister to those that are around us. And as I've always said that when you leave this place, you enter into your mission field. So here is this angel that says, worship the creator that made heaven and all that is in it. Today, there's a lot of people that think that we just evolved, that there's no creator. 
That's what, uh, you know, our kids are being taught. That's what we're being taught at the university, that everything just evolved. There is no creator. And, of course, Paul talks about that, that creation around us testifies that there is a God, Romans chapter 1, that there's a design. As you look at the, the complexity and design and, and how it's all together and diversity and, and all of that, there has to be a creator. And there is a wonderful creator that loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And that just amazes me that, you know, as David was looking up at the stars and the Psalms, he said, you know, the heavens declare your glory. And what is man that you're mindful of him? But do you know that you and I are the crowning jewel of his creation? And as he created and spoke all the magnificent universe and the stars and the galaxies and this world and everything that's in this world, that you are so valuable to him that he sent his son to die for you on that cross, that you might spend eternity with him. That is the wonderful, glorious gospel that's been proclaimed to us. Amen. And as Paul says, the glorious gospel has been entrusted to me. It is indeed glorious that we have a creator who created all things and he created you. Remember chapter 4? That he created you for his good pleasures. And he wants to use you. And he wants to work in you. And even as we read from Ephesians, as, as uh, Pastor Travis did, that he wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. Look to him. Worship him. Stay close to him. We have the privilege to have fellowship with the true and the living God. And so verse 8, as we continue, another angel follows saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine and the wrath of her fornication. So the second angel proclaiming the fall of Babylon. We will talk more about that when we get to chapters 17 and 18. Uh, we're going to see in chapter 17 that there's a false worldwide church on the scene, religious Babylon, and it's going to be supported by the Antichrist. Christ, the woman riding the beast in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. And then he's going to turn and destroy the false church because he alone wants to be worshipped. But then in chapter 18, there is commercial Babylon that's going to be destroyed. And we'll talk more about that when we get there. Some interesting prophecies that those of you who are with us when we went through the book of Isaiah that talks about the, you know, the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled concerning Babylon. And so the worldly system. It's all going to come to an end. The religious Babylon, commercial Babylon is going to be destroyed. You remember that in Daniel chapter 2, which is called the, the, the foundation of Bible prophecy, as Daniel was interpreting the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of that image that was made of different metals, it represented the Gentile empires that, that came on the scene from the time of Daniel, Babylon, all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ, where the rock hits the image in his feet and the image crumbles and turns to dust and then it blows away and then the rock grows and grows and the rock of course speaks of our rock Jesus Christ the kingdom of God listen man's kingdom is going to come to an end and God's kingdom is going to be forever so don't get too enamored with this world and we are going to be a part of the kingdom of God and rule and reign with him. It's so exciting to know that is our truth. 
But as we continue in verse 9, here is the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in, in the presence of the Lamb. Verse 11, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So the first angel flying around the earth proclaiming worship God who created everything given the everlasting gospel. The second angel follows Babylon has fallen. All of man's efforts of religion and, and, and man's system, it's all going to come down. It's all going to be destroyed. And then the third angel, this is heavy. Don't take the mark of the beast. Don't make your allegiance to him. Don't do it. Because if you do, there is no hope of salvation. They are warned here that they will go through the indignation. There is no way of escape. And they shall be tormented, listen, with fire and brimstone. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Now, sometimes teaching through the Bible and teaching through the book of Revelation, it's not always easy, but we need to know truth that is given to us. And there are those that are in the church today that are popular in the church that they say, well, there really isn't a hell. You know, I don't believe that the Bible uh, it really indicates that or that hell is not forever or they'll teach the doctrine of annihilation that if you're a non-believer, that when you die as a non-believer, you just annihilate it. It's just like you don't exist anymore. And we know that the Bible talks that about how hell is real. It is real. Jesus taught on hell. And he taught that it was a place of everlasting torment. And as we go through the scriptures, it is told to us in the book of Hebrews that it's accounted once for man to die and then the judgment. There is no second opportunity. There is no purgatory. These angels are proclaiming truth with great urgency and honesty. They cry out with a loud voice, worship God, don't buy into the Babylonian system is going down and don't take the mark of the beast. If you do, you are lost forever. And these guys are preaching passionately. And we are being told once again in the scripture that hell is real. It's not a joke that you know, some people will joke about hell. Maybe you've heard guys say, well, so I'll end up in hell. Me and my buddies, you know, we're just going to have a big party. It's like, really? Do you really think that? Because this isn't a game. This is real. And when we get to Revelation chapter 20, we're going to see that there is going to be the great white throne judgment where the unrighteous dead are going to be resurrected. And as they are resurrected, called the second resurrection, that they are going to be cast into outer darkness. They are going to be cast into the lake of fire. It says, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Hell is real and it is eternal. 
And here we're being told, as he says here, the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image. That is very heavy. Remember Luke chapter 16, that Jesus told the story of Lazarus and the rich man and in that compartment, Hades. And it was two compartments. There was the, the paradise, Abraham's bosom, and then the, the place of the unrighteous dead, a chasm in between. And it was the rich man that was taken down to the place of the unrighteous dead. Lazarus is there in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man, he notices Abraham and Lazarus, and he says, hey, hey, Abraham, send Lazarus over here. I'm thirsty. I'm in this torment. Have him dip his finger in cool water to touch my tongue. And, of course, Abraham said, that's not going to happen. We can't cross. And I can't imagine. Can you imagine being thirsty for all eternity? Don't let anybody snow you and say, well, hell isn't real. Oh, there's a purgatory. You can go to purgatory for a while till somebody prays you out or lights enough candles or till you become good enough. That's all man-made doctrines. That is all man-made doctrines. So the final resting place in the, that the abode of, of Hades, Gehenna, um, that there's going to be the lake of fire, they will be resurrected. The Abraham's bosom, they've are, that chamber is gone when Jesus died on the cross. And now Christians, so you understand 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. When you and I take our last breath here on this earth, that we're immediately with the Lord in heaven. And that's such a glorious truth that you and I have. And don't we want to share that truth with others? But hell is going to be real. The lake of fire. Torment. Day and night. It's going to be awful. In Isaiah chapter 20, people, you know, they weren't taking seriously the threat of the Assyrians. So neither were the Ethiopians and the Egyptians. They thought they can you know, uh, ally together and they can do away with the Assyrians. So Isaiah was told what you're to do is, as you read it in the King James, it, it reads that you walk naked and barefoot and you're to do it for three years. Prophets had an interesting ministry in the Old Testament, but probably what it meant was he took his outer garment off and, you know, he was walking around in his inner garment, kind of, kind of like in his underwear, and barefoot and it was to be assigned to Egypt and Ethiopia that they would be carried away captive, that they would be stripped. And that's what the Assyrians did. They were brutal. And they would come in and they would strip the people naked and they would make them walk barefoot. They put fish hooks in their mouths, tied them together. They were cruel and they were brutal. And God was saying the brutality and you know, cruelty is headed your way and you're not listening and you're not taking it seriously. So Isaiah, what you are to do is, you know, strip down to get their attention. Now, I'm not suggesting that you do that. But we do live in perilous times. And I believe with all of my heart we're in the last days. And I also believe that serious things are coming down. Some very heavy things. And I don't mean to put any undue burdens or you know, any of that on you. But that's what the Bible says is going to take place in the last days. 
And there is a devil that is brutal and cruel that he's deceiving many. And there is a world that is deceiving many by saying God doesn't exist or you know, it doesn't matter what you believe. And people are not taking heed to what the word of God declares to you and to me. They continue to live as they always have. Nothing's going to happen. Things continue as they always have. We don't need God in our life. There is no God. And the stakes are very, very high. It is too high to say whatever. And we need to give people the truth. And what I hope and pray for us as a church that we would always stand on the gospel, on truth, and on righteousness, that we would speak the truth in love. And we would get people's attention. And we would tell them, listen, there is going to be no nirvana. There's going to be no bliss. There's going to be no global peace. There's not going to be a new air. And you're going to hear that from those. You hear them from, from those who are getting political power, desiring that, hey, we're going to usher in a new era. Listen, the only new era that's going to be ushered in and the only peace that there's going to be is when the Prince of Peace comes back to establish his kingdom. So you don't have to go around walking around in your underwear, all right? You don't have to bury your body, but will you at least bury your heart? They laughed at Isaiah. They thought Isaiah was weird. They didn't listen to Isaiah. But Isaiah kept speaking the truth and he wept over the judgments that he was bringing to the people. Same with Jeremiah. And you see, there are people that we care about and we love that are headed for eternal damnation if they don't turn to the Lord. And that is the truth of God's word given to us. And we don't like to think about that. And we don't always like to talk about it, but it's the truth. Listen, the Assyrians are coming. The Assyrians are coming. The last days are here. And time is running out, and life is but a vapor. I was reading this morning in my devotions how, how Paul or how David was writing that life is but a shadow, there for a moment. And as we continue reading in verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. We get tired, don't we? We get weary. And in those times, you know, summer's over now, the summer season. A lot of you took a break this summer. You went on vacation, and, and still the weather's nice, and you're going to be able to do that. So whenever we get tired, we, we plan a time of rest. We, we go on vacation for rest. And, and the pressures that get put on us, the, the weariness of the cares of life and everything that we do. And I love so much what Jesus said on that hillside in Galilee. As he said, come to me, all of you who worry and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And I like that. When we get those times to get away, it might be just get away for part of the day or get away for a weekend or get away on a vacation, but then it's back to work. And Jesus says, I want to give you rest. Not rest from those things that, that we have to do in life that wear on us, 
But he does want to give you rest in those things. He wants to give you rest. And the way to do is he says, come learn of me. He says, come to me. And yoke yourself with me. And you're going to find rest in your soul. And you see, those in the tribulation, those believers, are weary from the tribulation. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, that they may rest from their labor and their works follow them. You will be at rest, at last, all of us, when we get to heaven. And we will have true rest when we get there. But in the meantime, on this side of eternity, it's a battleground. And just as we've talked about in 1 Timothy chapter 1, that Timothy, you waged a good warfare because it is a battle out there. And you might recall that it was in Deuteronomy that the Lord told Moses, Moses, I got one more battle for you to fight, and then I'm going to take you home to be with your you know, people. So as long as we're on this side of eternity, it's not a playground. We will get weary. We'll get tired. We'll get stressed. It's a battleground because the enemy comes against you. The world comes against you. And then there's the battle of the flesh. Your works will follow you. What does that mean? The labor, the work that you do for the Lord now, your labor of love will be remembered by the Lord and we will be rewarded for those works when we stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ. We don't stand at the great white throne judgment. We stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ and we're going to be rewarded for what we have done for him in the body, whether good or bad. All of our works tried by fire. And I want to remind you of this, as Paul reminded the Corinthian believers in the last verse of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, that you be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in the Lord, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Whatever you're doing for the Lord... And how you're living for the Lord. Listen, it is not in vain. The Bible talks a whole lot about crowns and running the race to win the prize. It was Jesus as he was getting ready to go to Jerusalem to go to the cross. That he's there in Jericho. And Luke's narrative tells us something very unique. Luke tells us that the people were expecting him to usher the kingdom of God immediately. So he stops before he makes that ascent up to Jerusalem where he's going to make his triumphal entry. And then later in the week go to the cross. And he says, listen, the, the kingdom of God is like a nobleman who went to a far country to, to receive a country. He gave each of his servants a talent or a mina and he comes back and they had to give an account of what they did with that mina and those who invested that mina that he would say well done good and faithful servant you're going to rule over 10 cities and you're going to rule over five cities you're going to rule over two cities is very similar to the parable of the talents that we read about in the book of Matthew. They're a little different, but very similar, you know, lessons that are there for us. Whatever God has given to you in gifts and talents, the gospel that he's given to you, I believe that was the mina. Have you invested it? The opportunities that he's given to you to be a good steward of that because there's rewards to be given. And one day we are going to stand before him. And we're not going to be judged for our sin because Jesus took that judgment on the cross. But I desire 
for my life, for my family, and for this church family, for you, that you would hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You're going to rule over five cities. You're going to rule and reign with me in doing this. I don't know exactly what that means, but the Bible declares to us that we should desire that. It's a powerful message here to a group of people that John is writing to that were being persecuted and fatigued and frustrated. And, and it's so important that we keep, it's critical, our minds on heaven. And people are falling away because they lose sight of eternity. And they don't know that there's great rewards that will last for all eternity to be given. So they end up pulling away. They get caught up in trivial things. Keep your eyes on eternity. Because it is real. And the Lord's going to reward you for what you have done. For you who has given a cup of water to a child in Jesus' name, he'll reward you greatly. For you who are praying in your prayer closet, for you who are giving of your resources, of your time, for you who are serving in very practical ways. The Lord's going to reward you for that. He remembers. And your work, your labor is not in vain. And then I look, verse 14, as we continue, behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having his uh, head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so he who sat on the cloud thrust his sickle on the earth, and the earth... Uh, was reaped. So as we read this here, the Son of Man with a sickle on a cloud, notice that he hasn't come to the earth yet. This is not the second coming. But this section starts a preview of Armageddon. And I believe that this is Jesus himself who is frequently called the Son of Man. Matter of fact, I believe in Matthew's Gospel that term is used 25 times. But some say that this is an angel, that this angel is like the Son of Man. And he's responding to another angel coming out of the temple. But I think that's unlikely that anyone or any angel made reference to the Son of Man or wearing a golden crown is anyone but Jesus. The only crown that he wore in his first coming was a crown of thorns. But we will see in chapter 19, he's going to come. The crown, a victorious crown. A crown of authority and ruling. He has a sharp sickle, and an angel proclaims that it's time to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Harvest what? Well, you can go back. We don't have time to go through it tonight, but the parable of the wheat and tares that Jesus talks about, how farmers spread seeds, and over time the wheat came up, but the tares came up as well. And when Jesus explained that parable, he said that it's the devil that went out and, and planted the seeds, and the wheat and the tares, and so uh, they were to leave it till the harvest this time and then the owner of, of the field that harvested or the Lord's going to give this final harvest, well, the wheat and the tares are going to be separated. 
So read that, that parable, and Jesus talks about that. So there's going to be a harvest. There's going to be a final harvest that will take place. And then another angel came out of the temple, verse 17, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who has a sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So notice that verse 14 and 18, Jesus, the Son of Man, has a sharp sickle, which indicates severity of judgment. Sin must be judged, and it will be judged by God. The kingdom of God will be established. And as I read these verses, there's a couple things that come to mind. That number one, that as we've been going through this, it seems like the Antichrist is going to win. Going through the tribulation period, he's in control of the world. He sets up a, a religious system, an economic system. He's a military leader. He makes war with the woman. He makes war with the saints. But then chapter 14 shows us that he will not win. He will not win. And what does that mean for you and for me today? You see, people who live for the world or live for Satan at best is a temporary glory. As I've already mentioned, there may be pleasure in sin for a season, but the end of the way is destruction. And living for Jesus, no matter how hard or rough, is temporary suffering that we will go through in this world, but you are going to live in unimaginable glory in the future. And that's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians that the, 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 the light afflictions that we experience now are nothing to be compared to the glory that awaits you and me in heaven. And the one thing that presses upon my heart in this study, the hardness of man's heart, that we have seen. Hide us from him who sits on the throne, chapter 6. They refuse to repent in, in the trump, trumpet judgments. A third of the world is dead, and yet they refuse to repent from their sins, joining in the world in demonic worship of the beast and celebrating when the two witnesses, the two witnesses of God are killed. They're rejoicing. It's the only time that there's rejoicing in the tribulation period. Those who dwell on the earth, the unbelievers, hardening their hearts. They're involved in false religious system, economic system. They weep when Babylon is destroyed. The hardness of man's heart. We see the sad state of man. So what does it mean for us? Number one, don't harden your heart tonight. We can take something home. Don't harden your heart to anything that the Lord that he is speaking to you through his word to you, through that still small voice. Maybe he's dealing with you in some area of your life. Maybe he's telling you that you need to turn away from that sin, that carnality. Maybe he's speaking to you about an attitude of heart. Maybe he's speaking to you about talking to somebody that, that you've been angry and bitter at. Don't harden your heart towards the Lord and what he has for you. Because we can do that very, very easily. And then second of all, this is what I want you to always to remember. That Satan is not going to win. And you may be going through tribulation right now 
in your own life, you're thinking, okay, you can talk about the great tribulation, but I got enough going on in my own life tribulation. And you may feel like that Satan is winning and the world is winning, and they are not going to win. Will you please believe that? That the Lord is going to see you through, and he has a wonderful plan for you, and his promises are true for you. And he says to you tonight that are wrestling, come to me, that are weary and heavy laden. And come learn of me and yoke yourself with me and you will find rest for your souls. And he is going to win because that which pertains to me, he will perfect. He will finish that work that he begun in me and that's a promise that is for you as well. That which concerns you that he's going to perfect and he's going to finish it and you're in his hands and he loves you and his promises are true for you. Satan is not going to win and you may feel like that he's roasting you and that he's beating you up and there's going to be nothing left and you may feel like you're going through the fire but you will find out as you trust in him and go to him and look to him don't pull away like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 in the burning fiery furnace Nebuchadnezzar says how many did we throw in there we threw in three well there's a fourth and it looks like the son of God and he's there with you, just as he was with those three Hebrew men. And they didn't get burnt, and they came out. But in the fire, I believe they wanted to stay in the fire. You know why? Because they had sweet fellowship with Jesus. And as you go through the sufferings of life, and I know that some of you are going through trials, and you're going through loss, and you're going through hurt and pain, there's no deeper fellowship with the Lord than the fellowship of his sufferings. And that's what Paul would pray. Oh, that I may know you. And the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings being made conformable unto your death. And it's the deepest level of fellowship that you can have with the Lord. When you're thrown in the burning, fiery furnace. And you will, I promise, as you go to him, even tonight... When you go home, get in that quiet place and say, Lord, I need you. I need you, Lord. I guarantee he's going to show up. And he's going to speak to your heart. And he's going to minister to you. And you'll begin to have rest in your heart. So, Father, we thank you. As the chapter ends with this battle Armageddon that's going to produce just this terrible judgment but Lord we know that Jesus took the judgment for us on the cross at Calvary and that's why we come to the communion table tonight as we take a few minutes and we're going to hold the elements in our hands because we remember that Jesus allowed his body to be broken and his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin so, Lord, I want to pray right now. I want to pray, first of all, if there's anyone here that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, never come in faith, that he loved you so much that when he went to that cross, he was thinking of you. I am convinced of that, that it was you that was on his heart and on his mind 2,000 years ago. 
And he died for you on that cross because of his love for you. It's the only hope that we have. The Son of God, God in the person of Jesus Christ came and he died for you, for your sins, because the greatest need is to be forgiven. Our sin has separated us from God. We're all sinners and the wages of sin is death. But Jesus came to bring life. That's why he came to this world. That's why he went to the cross. And as you come in faith believing that he died for you and asking for forgiveness and that he rose from the grave and he's alive, he will hear your cry. And you will be forgiven. And you'll have the hope of eternal life. And you'll have right relationship with the Father. Will you do that right now? You come in faith, surrendering your heart and your life to him. Quit going the direction you're going. That's what the word repent means. Now turn and turn to Jesus, your hope. And you can pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. You loved me. Forgive me. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe you're alive and I ask that you would sit upon the throne of my life. And I thank you for hearing my prayer. And I do want to learn of you and walk with you. I thank you for bringing me into the family of God in this new beginning, in Jesus' name. And when we end the service here, in a few minutes we're going to take communion, but will you come up, the prayer team, and just tell them you made that decision. We want to encourage you and bless you. But right now I pray for you tonight as you hold the elements in your hand. Jesus Christ loved you so much. He went to the cross for you. Know that he loves you now. And he's going to work in your life. And as you stand for him and as you are living for him and desiring to do what is right, that your labor is not in vain.